0: You're listening to a Southside Baptist Church podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We love you. We give you all the glory and honor. Lord, I couldn't help but think about The idea of a life being poured out, and I thought about Mary when she came to Jesus and she anointed his feet. The Bible says that she anointed his head and his feet, just poured that costly ointment over his body. It was her life savings, it was everything that she had put away. Judas said, Could not this have been given to the poor? And Jesus said, The poor. You'll have always, she's anointing me for my burial. That act of sacrifice should be the sacrifice that every single one of us would be willing to make and be glad to do it. So Lord, we praise you. We give you glory. You alone are worthy. And we pray, dear Lord Jesus, right now that you just continue to speak to us through your word. Lord, cleanse me. Remove any thought, any deed, any idle word, Lord. Cover me under the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me be a vessel in your hand. And I pray that every heart would be sensitive to what you want to say today. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can remain seated. I mean, standing. Not seated. You're already standing. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 5. Well, what a great Worship. What, a, what great songs. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm singing the lyrics and the words of those songs, I think about things in my own life, thing, things in the Bible that are written. I titled the message today, The Cost of, of the Beachhead, The Cost of a Beachhead. And I'll explain that term in a moment. I remember when Sheila and I, when we first went to the mission field, we went to Zimbabwe, Africa. I had an old veteran missionary that kind of pulled me off to the side and he began to uh, just basically ask me a question. It was a very simple question. Do you believe in the devil? Do you believe in a literal, real Satan, devil? Well, let me ask you that today, do you? Then he looked at me and he said, because if you don't, he said, I'll give you about three weeks serving here in Zimbabwe and you'll go home. I thought that was kind of strange. You know, I could understand somebody, a veteran missionary, asking me about my uh, salvation, about my commitment to Christ, about my understanding of my call to missions, but the thought of asking me, did I believe in a literal, real Satan, I thought was somewhat kind of strange. Until I, along with some missionaries, were going through a particular area when a young man came running out and began to scream in a gravelly, wicked kind of voice, he got down on all fours and he began to bark at us as if he were a dog. Now I'm going to tell you something, folks. folks from my Western background, I had no idea what I was facing, but immediately, Mafundis Jaina, these pastors immediately began to take that young man. They wrapped their arms around him. He fell to the ground, began to writhe in a seizure, and they began to pray over him. And uh, Brian, it was Mafundis Jaina. It was Midian. It was Mifundis Siabanda. When they got through, that young man laid limp. He could not move. And those people in that village picked him up and began to minister to him, and he came to Christ. The Bible says, Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we're involved in a spiritual battle. Well, we see it in Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. It said, they went across the lake to the region of the Gadareans, of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with chains. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart. He broke the arms on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran. He fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, For we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending, the pigs ran off and reported this in the town, in the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were what? They were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well, Then the people, look at verse 17, isn't that strange? Then the people began to plead with Jesus to lead the region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and he began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Let's pray again. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We pray, dear Lord, that nothing would interfere, distract, that people would listen closely. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Lloyd Ogilvie, wrote or made this statement. And I want you to listen closely because when I heard this, I thought about a lot of people through the years that I have observed as a pastor. He said, what happened to this man? How did he get in this condition? Like all of God's people, he had been endowed with a conscience. Huck Finn, Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer's friend, Huckleberry Finn, Was right when he made this statement conscience takes up more room than all the rest of a person's insides. That was true for Legion. Over the years, all the things he had learned to be, all the things he had learned to be right and wrong, had been blended within him. Then, like every human, he went against what he knew was right, probably in some little things at first. Then he heard the alarm signal within, and he felt guilty, but he told no one. Soon he began to dislike himself for what he had done. But because he believed that he was the only one who ever thought of of doing such things, he hid the acts and even the feelings. Then he disliked himself all the more. Soon he was deeply depressed. He became obsessed by his thoughts and his actions, which were causing him to feel even more guilty. And it wasn't long before his self-hate manifested itself in hurting those he loved. He began to say and do things he didn't want to say and do. He cried out for help, but always in some ways no one could understand. He was just confused and sick, they would say. There was no one he could talk with who would listen and understand. This syndrome became an established pattern, conscience condemnation, and finally, compulsion. Wow. J.C. Ryle states, we probably have not the slightest idea of the number and the activity of Satan's agents. We forget that Satan is the king over an enormous host of subordinate spirits who do his will. We would probably find if our eyes were opened to see spirits and to see the spiritual realm, that evil spirits are about our path, about our bed, observing our ways to an extent of which we have no conception in private and in public, in church and in the world. There are, they are busy enemies always near us of whose presence we are not aware. Frank Peretti wrote a book years ago called This Present Darkness. It was a a bestseller. In these opening scenes, he talks about a pastor who was praying and the demonic activity that was going on around him while he was praying that he was not privy or able to see. We see here a man. The Bible says that First of all, number one, the tombs were chambers. They were hewn. They were cut into the limestone cliffs. And uh, this poor man lived among the dead. He lived his life this way. He had taken up residence. Number two, people were unable to pass by him. Let me tell you something. When you run with sin and the devil long enough, you'll find yourself alienated from everybody. Nobody could pass by. Number three, all attempts to bind him, to control him, had failed. The language here in the Greek is to tame a wild animal, but this man could not be tamed. Let me tell you something. The only one that can tame the human nature is the power and indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit. That's it. You'll never have victory over any addiction until you know Jesus Christ. Number four, the Bible said that he cut himself. Well, that's strange. No, it's not. Because Jesus said in John 10, the enemy comes to kill, steal, and what? And destroy. So it's not unusual that that's what the enemy would lead somebody to do because the enemy is always about marring the image of God. The Bible says that when the Spirit came, it came in it. Some translations say worship, but that's not a correct translation. What it means is that the demonic legion of army of demonic spirits indwelling this man caused him to fall prostrate, caused him to recognize the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, our first point is the cost of a beachhead. In World War II, the Nazis were moving across Western Europe. They had pretty much sealed up Europe. America was reluctant to become involved. My dad said something this week that I thought was strange. He'll soon be 88. And we were talking about America's reluctance to enter into World War II, though Churchill was begging FDR to come into the war. And my dad made a statement that I've never heard before. He said, I didn't agree with our government and America either. And he said, because there was a boatload of Jews who sought some kind of place to land and to stay. And he said, the Americans denied them that opportunity And he said, as a boy growing up, I would never forget that. And if I remember, my dad said, that boat of Jews was ultimately sunk. But there's a cost of the beachhead. And the Nazis had pretty much sealed up Western Europe when the Americans, now in the war with the British troops, began to decide that they were going to invade Normandy. I've listened to those people who were eyewitnesses, those who experienced going across that bay there from the shores of England to the beaches of Normandy there in France. They said that grown men, soldiers, were shaking so bad that they could not light the cigarettes. They said it was not unusual for these men to wet themselves as they were making their way to Normandy because they could not control their urine or their bowels, their bladder or their bowels. Said so they were filled with an enormous amount of fear. Why? Because the Nazis were entrenched so heavily that the cost to gain the beachhead would be unbelievably sacrificial and it would be. I've told you the story one time back, video games were really big. Our kids were playing a video game and they had just gotten a new game. I was in another part of the house, kept hearing this screaming and hollering, this ranting and raving at the TV. Finally, I went in there, I began to realize, and they said, man, this game, you just can't win it. When all of a sudden I recognized the beaches of Normandy, and they were in the Battle of Normandy. And I talked, to, and I began to explain to them the great loss. There is a principle here: when you and I are in battle with our enemy, there is a cost to taking the beachhead in your marriage, in your home, in your work, in your school, in your job. Have you ever noticed in this passage what the demon said? What they said to Jesus, they begged Jesus, they said, Do not send us out of this territory, out of this region, because your enemy is territorial. All he's trying to do is to get a foothold in your life, in your marriage, in your home, in your parenting in your job, in your school, wherever you are, your enemy is just trying to get a foothold because he's territorial. These demons were saying, we've invested a lot into this region, this territory. Don't send us away. And that's your enemy. You know, I wrote down here, they'd gone through in chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, they'd gone through an enormous storm. Jesus, at one point, do you remember when he addresses the storm, He addresses it in the same language that he addressed spiritual demonic forces. In fact, I wrote this down. Spiritual darkness had shown its power on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus had also shown his power. Wind and waves were shouting to this man on the Gadarean shore, you're going to lose this one. Jesus and the disciples come through this storm and immediately, note the word immediately. Uh, Mark would use that a lot in the Gospel of Mark. The Bible said when they landed on the shore that immediately this Gadarean comes and with his gravelly demonic voice he begins to address Jesus. But it says immediately. And I thought there's a principle here. This is your enemy and my enemy. Isn't this the way our enemy works? whatever spiritual resolution you and I make, isn't it just like our whatever excitement, whatever revival, whatever God's doing in your life, isn't it just like your enemy and my enemy to immediately address it and kill it? You get passionate. You get excited. You begin to get a fervor. You begin to get a resolve in your heart, a spiritual resolution that you're going to turn this marriage, this home, this family, this job, this occupation, this educational track back over to Christ. You start saying, I'm going to sell out and I'm going to give it everything. And do you know what Satan does? Immediately he seeks to squash it. And he'll do it from the most unlikely sources... There's another principle. Satan will always seek to kill whatever God is doing in your life and in my life immediately. He will seek to put out the flame to kill the passion and still your joy. You ever think about that? You ever walk out of here and you've sung those songs of praise and worship and fellowship with other believers and you've listened to the message and God has spoken to your heart only to walk out to the parking lot and feel like the devil is out there to meet you. Only to get in your car and feel like he just opened the door. Only to get in the car and be on your way home and feel like he's in the back seat screaming and hollering. Only for you to get home and get out of the car and he's already in there cutting on the TV. Isn't that the way the devil works? You see, in the Normandy invasion, The enemy was so heavily entrenched in that territory that when our soldiers were landing, snipers, the enemy was killing them as fast as they could get off the boat. Immediately. I heard a British commander say of a battleship that the reports were coming to him from Normandy that the troops were losing the battle. And this commander said, we've got to do something. He said, and he began to head his battleship in that direction. His leaders around him said, you can't do that. This water's too shallow. You'll run this ship aground. You ever notice in some of these war movies where they know how to cuss? He said, I don't care if we run the blankety-blank ship on ground or not. He said, we've got to help them. But that's your enemy. You see, that's the way the enemy works. He gets a beachhead. South side, in a lot of ways, is a beachhead. You see, just like the enemy wants to get a beachhead in your life, Christ wants to get a beachhead. Just like the enemy may feel like, I've got this school, or this institution, or this job, or this workplace. I've got it locked up. This is my territory. And God sends you in there like a spiritual soldier to get a beachhead in a territory that the enemy's been running a long time it's not easy is it It's a cost to it Southside is a beachhead we get beat up, shot up we may be a little low today been low here last couple of Sundays we could get depressed but I've been here about 21 years now I've seen this church many times get beat up, kicked around, knocked around before long we're back up again This past Monday, I was sitting in my truck, and I had pulled jury duty. That's always a joy. Me and 74 other people, there were 75 of us, and so they got us in there and made us watch this 1960 video, it looked like, on a little small screen TV, and we went through all of this, and then the judge began to speak to us, and then they divided us up into two groups, and I was number 72 out of 75. God was answering my prayers. And uh, so I went out, sat in my truck. Well, I noticed they had told us that there were golf carts available to pick up and to shuttle people back and forth from their vehicles in the parking lots up to the courthouse. So I looked over there, and these golf carts, there was about three of them, were manned by prison trustees, those trustees dressed in their uniforms. I noticed every once in a while they'd look over at my truck and um, finally one of them came over. He pulled up in his golf cart. I thought he was going to ask me, did I want to ride? He said, uh, he looked at me kind of sheepishly. He said, Brother Jeff. I said, yes. He said, I'm so-and-so. And he said, I listen to your podcast every week. And he went on to say, he said, right now in the jail, we're listening to the to your series, to the series on Ephesians. In fact, I mentioned Reggie's name because Reggie did a tremendous job of walking us through the, that part of that warfare where he talks about all the different parts of the armor, of a, the spiritual armor of a believer. And he brought that up, Reggie. And I thought to myself, here's a man. He, and we talked for the longest. And I came home and I told Sheila and Sheila cried. I said, you know, Sheila, it's interesting how Southside is small and insignificant as we somehow sometimes may feel. It's amazing how we just seem to pop up here. We just pop up there. we just God using us. Had a young man come this past Wednesday. He brought a man who heads a ministry in Dallas. He said, we just wanted to come by and visit a while. And he went on to talk about the impact and the influence of this church in his life and how he was committed to Christ and how he was getting ready to start a church in this this city. And he went on to talk to this man who had this Dallas ministry. You and I may think, you know, I'm nothing. We're just insignificant. But my friend God uses Southside to create a beachhead in what the enemy would seal up and lock up if he could. It's funny. I thought about it. I thought, well, you know, a lot of times you feel like you're not much of anything. You're, not, you're a nobody. And I wrote down here, I was mopping floors Thursday and then later standing before the board of directors at Baptist Hospital giving a devotion. I laughed this past week. We were at Marge's little Cafe 570, and Marge began to talk about all of the Floridians that had fled from down in Florida were here, and so many of them had been coming into Marge's place, and every one of them commenting on the spirit of Marge's little restaurant there and how she was ministering to them. And I looked at Marge, and I said, Marge, I'm so proud of you. Marge said, I'm just south side extended out here in this area. You see, you and I are in the business of taking a beachhead for Christ. And sometimes it's not easy. I love W.A. Criswell. W.A. Criswell pastored First Baptist Church Dallas for over 50 years. He tells the story, college football starting up now. He tells the story, he said that he was at the Cotton Bowl. And in the Cotton Bowl, Oklahoma was playing Texas. Well, here he was, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas. He said, I was sitting in that Cotton Bowl Stadium. He said, I was surrounded by Texas fans. They were everywhere, all them Longhorn fans. He said, when all of a sudden one man stood up, he said, I don't know, you may have been drinking, I'm not really sure. He stood up and he waved a $100 bill. And he said, all you Texas fans. I'll give you seven points in this $100 bill. W.A. Criswell said a little while later, he stood up again, this Oklahoma fan in the middle of those Texas fans. He said, Oh, you Texas fans, I'll give you this $100 bill in 14 points. Nobody took his, his bet. Finally, he stood up in the game again. He said, Oh, you Texas fans. I'll give you this $100 bill in 21 points. W.A. Criswell said that man sat down. He leaned up and he said, man, he said, I'd love to have you in my church. He said, sir, you believe in your team and you put your money where your mouth is. A beachhead cost. Number two, it's not the property but the person. You say, Satan is territorial. He's always about nations and communities and neighborhoods and homes and marriages and families and schools and your life, but it's not about territory. He's not concerned about South Jackson or Jackson or Mississippi or this country or any other country or your neighborhood. He's concerned about the people who live there. Herschel Hobbes said this, He said, why did the demon cry out such a request? Because Jesus had repeatedly been saying to the demon in the imperfect tense, come out of this man, you unclean spirits, because demons do not like to be disembodied. In other words, the pit of hell loves some place to rest. Sheila and I, when we were married March 19th, 1978, we were both students at Mississippi State, and uh, we had planned I'd borrow $300 to go on our honeymoon. That tells you how cheap it was back then. Um, We we got married on a Sunday. We wanted to be married on a Sunday. So we got married on a Sunday afternoon about 3 o'clock, and then afterwards had the reception, and then we took off spent the first night in meridian and then we went on to florida because we were going to florida we were going to go to disney world we were just going to have us a grand old time so anyway we go down to florida and here we are and i'm driving a, a a triumph tr6 sports car that my college roommate had let me borrow i love that car sheila said i could have went on the honeymoon by myself i enjoyed that car so much But anyway, I'll never forget, we drove from Meridian all the way to Jacksonville, Florida. And when we got down there, I walked into a holiday inn and and I looked around and there were people, some of them crying in the lobby there. And I walked up and said, We'd like the honeymoon suite. And the guy kind of smiled and said, It's it's already taken. I said, Well, we'll just take any room. Then he said, Sir, you don't understand. We don't have no vacancies. And I said, What do you mean? I said, Well, can you call and get us another holiday in? He said, Sir, you don't understand. There's not a vacancy and no hotel in the entire state of Florida. Well, then Sheila and I, we were crying. And I thought, Well, you know, that can't be true. So we got on, I think it's Sideway 91 or 1 that goes along that Atlantic coast going down, uh, going down the coastline of Florida. And every, I'll never forget, there was one place. What was that place called, Sheila? The Windrift Motel, it looked like a dump, but we were, man, we would have stayed there in a minute, and it said, no vacancies. I mean, everywhere, no vacancies, lights, no vacancies. Back then, they put light, you know, they had lighted up out there, no vacancy, no vacancy, no vacancy. You may say, well, what did you do? Well, we finally showed up at my older sister's house late, uh, probably after midnight, one or two o'clock in the morning, beat exhausted in Orlando, Florida. No vacancy. Do you know what you ought to put over your life? Do you know what you ought to put over your marriage, over your home? Do you know what you ought to put over your church, over your neighborhood, over your community? No vacancy. Satan, you're not welcome here. But a beachhead cost. It's not the property, but the person. Thirdly, Satan tips his hand. What does that mean, tip your hand? Any card players here? You ever play cards and try to catch a glimpse of somebody else's hand? They tip their hand, which means they unknowingly tip their hand down and you're able to identify their cards. They reveal their hand and thereby they show their strategy. This was Satan. Satan's strategies have never changed When Jesus asked this man, he said, "'What is your name?' He said, "'Legion, for we are many.'" You know, I thought to myself, you're not that many. You know, that's what Satan will do sometimes. He'll intimidate us. He'll make us think, "'Man, you don't realize what you're messing with.'" You know what Paul said, "'Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world.'" You know what that means? That means Paul's statement in Ephesians where he says to you and I, we have the deposit of God's Holy Spirit is more powerful than all of hell put together. Satan t- t- tips his hand. He, 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 basically, he basically says, he says, well, we, we, we are many, we're legion. You know, there's a story, and I don't have time, in 2 Kings chapter 6, In 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha and his servant are in a bad situation. The Arameans have basically now come, and they're going to come kill the prophet Elisha. And his servant comes in, and his servant is just shaking. He's all upset. Elisha is perfectly calm. And and Elijah says to his servant, well let me let me let me read at least that. In in 2 Kings chapter uh, chapter 6, let me say, because this is one you, you need to hear and you can remember this. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 16. Elisha the prophet says to his servant who is scared because the Arameans have completely surrounded them with all their horses and chariots and all their weaponry. And Elisha seems to be perfectly calm. And Elisha all of a sudden looks at his servant and he says, don't be afraid. The prophet answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open the servant's eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes. He looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around him. Let me tell you something. The enemy is battling right now. There is a spiritual war going on right now not only in this church, not only in this community, not only in this neighborhood, but for everything you and I value as good. He said, we're legion, we're many. And that's what the devil would make you think. That he's just too big a force, You you can't handle him. You're right, I can't handle the devil, but Jesus Christ can. And he goes on to say, he said, we're locked in. He said, we've locked up this region, the Gadarean area, this territory. He said, we've not only locked up this man, this is our territory, and don't make us leave it. Well, the answer to that is not necessarily. You know, a lot of times Satan will whisper while you pray, this this child is my child, this grandchild is my grandchild, grown or not. This marriage is my marriage. This spouse is my this my, this spouse is mine. You know the enemy a lot of times will say this is mine. I've locked it up, sealed it up. You might as well give up. Jesus said in Luke 18, he said men ought always to pray and never give up. You may think well there's nothing I can do. Yes, you've got something you can do. You can pray. And notice what happens. Jesus takes the demons. Herzlob said this. He said, why did the demon cry out such a request? Again, because Jesus had repeatedly been saying, come out of this man, you unclean spirits. Demons do not want to be disembodied. And the demons finally say, look, don't, let us, don't make us leave this territory, this area, this region. Put us in the pigs. And Jesus does that. He grants his permission. Now, the last point I call remnants of rebellion. You would think when all of this happened that there would have been a great revival. You would think to yourself, this would have been a great recovery, a great rescue. This man had been saved. He was sitting there now in his right mind. His his whole life had changed. I'm sure they ran into the community and they found his wife and his family and his kids and said, because he had a family, because Jesus told him to go home to his family. They probably went to his wife knocking on the door. Get out of here quick. You're not going to believe what's happened. Jesus has landed on the on the shore there and he has set your husband free. It was an outdoor meeting one time. When a man who had been a drunk and alcoholic lived his life making his family miserable, living in a bondage to addiction and to all kinds of issues. And this man was now standing and he had a Bible and he was preaching the gospel. And another old drunk came up and kept interrupting and finally began to shout and holler at him and said, You're just a fanatic, you're nut, you're crazy. You're just sleeping. About that time, a little girl tugged his pant legs and said, Sir, that's my daddy. And my dad used to drink. My dad used to spend every penny my mama had. My dad put us through hell. My dad used to beat my mom. My dad used to not provide for us. And she said, Sir, pulling his pant Lake, she said sir if my daddy's asleep God knows don't wake him up you'd have thought that had been great revival this man had been cured but these people love pigs more than they love people these were I don't believe these were Gentiles I believe these were Hellenistic Jews they were Jews that had long since compromised learned to live learned to survive C.H. Linsky believes these townspeople to be Jews. So why not rejoice over this man's healing? Listen closely because what happened to these Jews can happen to us. Listen to what he said. Number one, they had lived close to Gentile territory and in time were making money in Gentile enterprises. Number two, they valued pigs more than they valued people. Number three, finally, this Jesus is going to cost too much. The price of true identification with him will hurt commerce. True revival, he writes, results in liquor sales, drug sales, gambling habits, sexual promiscuity, sex business, unethical business practices, and professions coming clean and all of those sins going down. He said, "Number four, they rejoice over a man. They don't rejoice over a man seated in his right mind, clothed and listening to the teacher. But rather, they grieve the heap of swine flesh laying at the bottom of the ravine, drowned in the sea. The principle coming clean always cost." And I love this verses eighteen through twenty. Jesus was saying to this man, when this man wanted to go with him, he said, you can't go. He said, I've given you a beachhead in this territory. Now you must remain, and you must start with your own household, and you must work your way out. I'm not going to take you out of that situation. You are there by divine appointment. My friend, I'm afraid too many of us gripe and complain about the situations that we're in when God says, I put you there for the very reason that you're griping and complaining about. He goes on, we can dismiss the demonic, we can diminish the demonic, we can dance with the devil, or we can declare war under the authority of our commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. And he concludes by saying to this man, his mission field was his own home. And he tells him to go home. You know, I don't know what you face today. I don't know what difficulty you may be in. I don't know about your marriage. A lot of people may listen by website. I don't know your financial situation. I don't know your health. I don't know your job situation and what you may be going through. I don't know what difficulty you may face, but if you are a child of God, I can tell you the author behind whatever is going wrong and whatever difficulty you face is your enemy, Satan, the devil. And he's territorial. All he's trying to do is get a foothold. If he can get a foothold, then before long... He'll take up residence. And your answer is no vacancy here. Let's stand. You remember when Jesus was talking about a strong man? How do you take a strong man's house? How? You bind the strong man. Now let me ask you something. If you are a Christian, who's living in you? Jesus Christ, the power and presence of his indwelling Holy Spirit. Now listen closely. Test question. Is there anything that can bind Jesus? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I can tell you what can affect your life and my life. We can grieve that Holy Spirit. And the word grieve there means we can make we can make the Holy Spirit weep and mourn within us and we begin to lose our joy because we've got a grieving Savior living within us. We can grieve and we can quench and the word quench in the Greek is to put out a fire. All the passion, all the excitement, all the zeal, everything that you need to take territory for Christ can be diminished when you and I get called in habitual willful disobedience. We cannot grieve, we cannot quench the Holy Spirit. We must not. These are desperate times. Do you know Him? Are you saved? Let's bow and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You, dear Lord, today. There may be somebody in this room, that, dear Lord, as they listen to this message and they see this Gadarean, this man possessed and held in bondage to a demonic army. Some ways they may feel that way today. And Lord Jesus, you're knocking on their heart's door. You're pleading to come in. And they'll open up their life and they'll just simply say, Lord, here I am, I'm a sinner. Come into my life, come into my heart. I repent of my sin That means I feel ashamed, feel sad over the bondage of my own sin. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, to come into my heart and to forgive me and to cleanse me and to be the Lord, and the master of my life from this moment on. I pray, dear Lord, if there's one here, that you're speaking to their heart right now, that they may say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin. Come live in me and forgive me and be my Lord. For others in this room, they're in a difficult circumstance. They are battling the enemy. They may be tired, may be discouraged, may feel like giving up, but Lord, may they not do that May they understand that they're in a war and may they continue to gain that beachhead to win those battles so that Jesus Christ begins to take over control of that life, that home, that marriage, whatever situation may be on the heart right now. Lord, we love you. We're going to trust you. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.